Today's episode of Wings for Breakfast is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from the experts at GoToMeeting, all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Find us on smart speakers or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen at gotomeeting.com slash tips. That's gotomeeting.com slash tips. and welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I am Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Ayer. Prashant, we are going on, I believe, soon to be week four of this whole uh, stay-at-home quarantine deal. How are you holding up? Uh, you know, this weekend, I tried to get myself outside and realized it's just such a bad idea. I tried to chop down some uh, some logs for firewood, ended up smashing my finger, then had an allergic reaction to a copper mug. So just stay inside. Just don't bother going outside. You know, there's, there's, there's nothing out there. We're good at home. Yeah, I went for a run on Saturday, like early afternoon, and my hamstrings still hurt almost two days later. So... Uh, not a great sign for my activity levels through this whole process, but I have been watching uh, a whole lot of TV. I've been digging into The Sopranos this week. Uh, never really watched it. I mean, I was like four when it was on. My dad tells me that I did watch it, but I just don't remember it. So um, anyways, that's what I've been doing, and I figured one one thing we could do to get the show going today is I'm curious, number one, what you're binging, and number two, what is the quarantine-themed plot line for whatever show that is? Oh, that's a good idea. Um, so, I mean, anyone who, who knows me, I, I don't really watch a lot of television because I don't really have the attention span to, like, sit down and focus. So more than anything, like, when I watch TV shows, it's more for the noise and, and less for, like, I have to pay very much close attention. It's why I struggled for years to watch Game of Thrones until finally my wife made me, like, sit down and watch it. Uh, and I couldn't have any distractions or allow myself to be distracted. So the show that's almost always on in the background at my house is The Office, simply because it's a lighthearted show, really funny, a lot of great plot lines. But, I mean, to be quite honest, like, I've been thinking in my head for the last couple of weeks, like, what would a quarantine episode of The Office look like? And you can just imagine or write the plot lines uh, quite easily. Like, I can just imagine there's a memo from corporate that's coming into Michael Scott, and he's... He's got to tell everyone that they're working from home, and, and initially maybe he dismisses all of it, but then eventually the group gets sent home, and, and now you have Michael kind of spamming everybody with inappropriate memes or gifts or, you know, things like that. You have uh, uh, maybe Kevin who hasn't figured out how to use his computer correctly or Zoom or chat or anything like that. You've got kind of Dwight making these uh, obnoxious references, and and you always have Jim deadpan at the camera, and it's just like the 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 plot kind of writes itself uh, to a certain extent, and and you can just imagine how that episode would lay out. And I think there was actually an article talking about, um, at least to the producers of The Office, that potentially that is what an episode would look like. So it just seems like it would write itself quite easily, and maybe provide a, a little bit of lighthearted humor. That's very good. The Office is probably the perfect show for that too, because of I mean. Michael on a Zoom call would be pretty perfect. 
I mean, between that, already all the email forward stuff that happens in the show, you can just imagine Kevin trying to struggle with technology. It just, it's all right there. It, it just, all the pieces are already there. Dwight would have a cure or some like wacky cure that he thinks he discovered years ago. Yeah, I mean, he can raise and lower his cholesterol just at the whim, you know, at on, on a whim. And so you might as well. He has a perfect immune system. Like, you know, when he gets everybody to sneeze on him so he can build up his immune system, I can just imagine that playing out. So all of the plot lines, you, you don't have to do any character development. It's already all there. Yeah, The Sopranos is is a tough one because they're all just, like, criminals, and I don't know how how much they would obey it. But I think there's enough people in kind of the – the family that uh, are are old or, or immunocompromised or something that they could have some some nice little uh, side plots and I mean Christopher would rec- recklessly disobey the quarantine for sure he would be out business as usual trying to trying to make it a money making enterprise everything that's going on with quarantine but I feel like there would be enough between like Silvio and Polly that um, of like you know uncertainty they don't want to get it but they also don't want to show that they're actually scared of the virus and so there there's kind of a front going on there uh, but I probably am, I'm only one season in like I just started season two before I fell asleep last night um, so I probably need to get a little further in before I have a real defined plot I was also thinking like the show I just finished is uh, Detroiters which I never watched when it was on originally but I loved Tim Robinson um, and you know, the show was awesome I think there'd be a really good uh, Detroiters episode potentially since since Sam and Tim are neighbors in the show and trying to decide um, like Sam's sister is married to Tim in the show and uh, like trying to decide can Sam come over for dinner or not and, and the you know them talking to each other through the windows about pitches and all that stuff so I, I think Detroiters might actually be able to do a better quarantine episode than Sopranos. Yeah, you know, I still have to go back and watch it because I haven't. I don't think I actually watched that when it was uh, running, so I'll have to make sure I go back and maybe we uh, reconvene and write the episode ourselves. There we go. I, I loved the show, so I I remember thinking when it was on that I needed to um, to find time to watch it, but I think that was before I had the ability to stream anything from Comedy Central because I don't think their streaming is as available as some of the other places. Is that? I think yeah, that's how it goes. Yeah, I think you're right on that. And I know a lot of people right now are starting to make things more available. Like even HBO is, is allowing right. people to, to go back and watch a ton of stuff. So I suspect this is the perfect time to catch up on any TV show that you've just not been able to see. And for me, that's a laundry list of TV shows. So uh, might as well get started with the Detroiters. Yeah, there you go. All right, so uh, moving forward into the hockey stuff. Today we have, we're going to do something that I've been kind of thinking about for a while and uh, I'm glad that you were willing to humor me on it, which is sort of this idea I've always had about what, what would be a better situation to be in. It's kind of like a fantasy draft type situation, but I'm going to give you 23 consecutive picks to build your NHL roster. Now it has to be cap compliant, but 23 picks. So you get one through 23 and then I am going to try and kind of chase the rabbit with picks 24 through 46 or 47 or whatever, 46. Um, but And I will also have a salary cap, but I will get, for my trouble of giving you the first 23 picks, um, I am going to give myself six entry-level contracts, if you can agree to that. Yeah, yeah, I can uh, I can definitely buy into that and, and to further define this out. So I think when we're building this roster, we're going to say we have to make 23 picks. We can't play... With right. 22 or 21, even though you technically can in the NHL. Um, and then as far as positions, we, you can't take a center and throw them wherever you want. Uh, you gotta, you gotta follow strict positional adherence. So for that, I guess we can use the positions on NHL.com. 
as as accurate as they might be, we will uh, kind of hold ourselves to that standard as well. I am good with that. Um, yeah, right. I think that's. I think that's. All. Let's. So when we're when we're done picking these rosters, we will put them out on Twitter, and then we will check them against Dom's uh, latest GSVA projections, and we will see how we stack up on both analytics and on both the fan vote and we'll see uh, ultimately how we come out i don't know what happens if we tie if one of us gets fan vote and one of us gets analytics i guess we just let chris our producer decide yeah i think that that's fair and with as much as i ragged on montreal i know i'm gonna lose that tie-breaking vote so, <laughs> so it's, it's all good I'm, I'm i'm more than prepared for that but let's uh let's dive in so i've got the first 23 picks then right yep you go ahead all right, so, you know, when I'm thinking about roster construction, obviously the way I think about things is I want players that are very strong um, from a two-way perspective, players that uh, are very difficult to play against defensively as well as when they have the puck. Uh, from defensemen, I'm looking for guys that can move the puck up. I'm looking for versatility and in, in, in skating. And then goalies, obviously, I'm looking for the cheapest goalie that's going to be able to stop the puck for me. So, uh, when I went out and I started constructing this roster, I think uh, the first three picks I made, which make up my first line, would be Brad Marchand at left wing. I think he's an absolute steal at his contract, coming in just over $6 million, giving you an incredible amount of value. Uh, Nathan McKinnon at center, he's again got one of the NHL's best contracts. And since I can't use entry-level contracts, I have to stay away from the guys that are making north of eight and a half, nine million dollars because taking one of those guys automatically puts me behind the eight ball. So I try to stick mostly in the six million dollar range with Brad Marchand, Nathan McKinnon, and then David Posternock being my highest paid or second highest paid player. That's kind of my first line. Uh, second line, again, trying to keep up with that uh, versatility and, and also a nod back to the Red Wings and how good some of their players are, in, even though we're talking about an historically awful team. I went with Tavo Teravainen on left wing, Sean Couturier, who I think is one of the most underrated players, and he his contract, Max, I don't know if you've ever looked at his contract before. Sean Couturier makes $4.3 million. Yeah, that... You know, there's a lot of talk about kind of some of the top center contracts, and obviously Nathan McKinnon's is awesome. Obviously, Alexander Barkov's contract is awesome. I'm not so sure there is a better contract than Sean Couturier's, excluding ELCs. I mean, there. I don't know that there is. And when I was doing this, and I came across his contract, not only is it 4.3 million for 2019-2020, the Flyers have him on that deal for two more years, and he's yeah. 27. Like they're going to get him to age 30. On paying him less than five million as a cap hit, which is mind-boggling. And again, Couturier didn't really break out until the last couple of years. He was quietly very good. I think he's really emerged as Voracek has kind of uh, regressed a little bit, and, and Giroux has kind of stayed consistent. I think Couturier is really the guy that stepped up. But at four point three million dollars, he's a slam dunk, no brainer to put on the second line right there with Tavo Teravainen, and then. Uh, obviously Detroit's Anthony Manta, who at $3.3 million is again, an excellent value player. You and I have talked about him at length this season being just a phenomenal overall player. He really impacts both sides of the puck and, and having him with Katuria and Teravine and Teravine being an excellent playmaker, that's going to be a really difficult line to stop. Uh, dropping down to line three, again, trying to stick with the value in the middle. Um, my highest paid player is Braden Point. Um, who even at his highest paid player status, he's at 6.75 million and that's his brand new contract. And, 
And that's, again, not a bad deal for a guy who is second in the league in goals above replacement over the last three seasons. So he's right behind Connor McDavid. Absolute value pick right there. Um, on his uh, on the wings for him, I had Zach Hyman, who uh, has quietly, after getting a lot of, I think, bad press his, when he was playing up next to Austin Matthews and, and Bab, you know Babcock had him up there, and a lot of people were very disappointed with that. He's quietly turned in an outstanding last two seasons. And again, he's a great value pick at $2.25 million to be able to stick on the third line, um, be a puck retriever for that that line. And then the other guy I went with is um, another Rangers steal in Pavel Bucinevich, who uh, is, again, coming into his own. He's, he's, again, got a great contract at a little over $3 million. So um, real nice uh, third line. And then finally, line four, um, as a checking line, you know, this is a lot of fun, sticking again with value in the middle. Alexander Barkov coming in at just under $6 million at center. Um, and for wingers, Tyler Bertuzzi, with the season he's had this year, uh, $1.4 million right now. So uh, another thing I tried to really chase after was the guys whose contracts were expiring this season because uh, they were likely guys who had been bridged um, and were – in, we're due for a big contract like Bertuzzi, like Mantha, um, but they haven't gotten there yet. And so Bertuzzi at $1.4 million being able to play on the fourth line at left wing, uh, not a bad value deal. And then another guy who uh, has had an absolutely outstanding season is Val Nichuskin, uh who's really playing for his NHL career and uh, rightfully so. He's been one of the top 50 forwards in the NHL this season. So that's kind of my forward group. That um, last pick is one that will definitely play in the analytics. I'm curious how, how the oh, fans yeah. vote it, but that's one that will play very well in the analytic. Uh, is, yeah, that's a pure analytics pick because uh, he's under a million in, in cap hit, and he's had a absolutely monstrous season. Um, he's going to be due for a huge contract, uh, or a much bigger contract, I should say, two to three times what he's getting right now. Um, but that's just a huge value pick, and that's what I had to do ultimately was – uh, what I tried to find was the guys who maybe didn't excel so much on their ELC that they got a long contract, but they were, they had to be bridged and those bridges are ending. And that's really the, the, if you, uh, the market value pick that I had to make in order to, to stay competitive in that. So that's kind of my forward lineup. Um, like I said, I think it's pretty strong top to bottom. Max, you got any critiques for me there? Um, I really liked the Zach Hyman pick. I mean, it, he was at Michigan when I was there, so I have uh, followed him for quite a long time, and you know it's good to see that he's kind of getting some of the um, some of the shine that you know when he was in college his last year. I don't know if people realize how good a senior college season Zach Hyman had. Like he was one of the best players in the country. Like I think he had like fifty points in like thirty so thirty seven games or something like that. Um, so he was awesome. So I, I obviously, uh, like that pick. That was a guy I was planning to have, uh, in my second, uh, my second 23 in order to, to try to catch up and, and get some value there. But, uh, no, I mean, I think one, one place looking ahead that I think I'm going to probably get to you is on the wings. Um, but we'll see. I mean, your center group is about as good as it gets. And it, they're, they're guys who play, you know, you got your McKinnon, who's going to be your dynamic scorer. And then every other guy in your team is a shutdown center. So, uh, that worries me a little bit off the hop. All right. So I've, I've made a decent dent. Obviously that, that forward group took a ton out of my, uh, my bucket because I'm working with an 81 and a half million cap and I don't get any entry level contracts. Um, so defense again, I tried to find, the value players here. 
Um, you know, the, the most expensive defenseman I went after was a guy who's had just an absolutely monstrous season, who's been arguably, uh, the best defenseman this year in Ryan Ellis. So Ryan Ellis at 6.25 million was the most expensive guy I went after. I figured I have to get big time value out of my D group. Um, and he was an important one to get. The, uh, the next one I went with was actually his counterpart in Nashville and, and Roman Yossi, who's likely going to win the Norris Trophy. And again, Roman Yossi, when you're thinking about the Sean Couturiers of the defensive world, well, Roman Yossi's, uh, you know, this is the last year of that $4 million cap hit for him. His $9 million extension kicks in next season, so this was the perfect time uh, for me to be able to jump on Roman Yossi at $4 million values. Just unbelievable. Um, a couple other guys that I wanted to make sure I, I jumped on as well from a, a pure value standpoint. One is John Klingberg. He's had a really tough season this year, but again, I'm not playing strictly in the mindset of this season. And if you look back at his last two seasons, he was arguably one of the top 10 defensemen in the NHL. He's got a great cap hit coming in under $5 million. Uh, another guy who's really mobile, really dynamic, really great skater, can do a lot of things. Um, the next guy I went to make sure I picked was Colton Pareko. I've absolutely loved him in St. Louis. Uh, for a while, he's really been an analytics darling. He is a little bit more expensive um, at about $5.5 million, but at the same time, he provides you a lot of value, provides you some power play offense, got a great shot, very solid defensively. Um, and then the last two picks I went with on defense were guys that I think are big, big analytics value picks. And so number one is Ryan Pulak, who at $2 million for the New York Islanders, he's an absolute steal. Great shot. Again, another guy you can put on the power play with a rocket. And then Tony D'Angelo, who is on his uh, last year of this contract, coming in at 925000 I mean, he was just a can't-miss uh, player from that perspective. And so that kind of rounds out my defensive group. It's Roman Yossi, John Klingberg, Ryan Ellis, Tony D'Angelo, Colton Pareko, Ryan Pulak. Um, and then the scratch that I picked is actually Devon Taves, also an Islanders defenseman who's actually only getting 715000 Another great value pick um, in my perspective. Max, any thoughts no. on the defense? No, I mean, it's really strong, really strong group. Um, I thought it was interesting, you know, one of the things throughout this that, you know, there's a couple guys who, uh, like Pulak is a guy who certainly would have, at $2 million, I think any team would love to have. He's going to get a big raise. Also a guy who, when we did our uh, projecting comparables for Red Wings prospects, is a guy that came up multiple times for Red Wings prospects. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, Pulak's a guy that, you know, we talked about him uh, relative to Tuomisto, who I think was – uh, probably the best comparison, both big, booming shots, uh, defensemen that can skate, a little bit more offensive-minded. Uh, I think that's what you're ultimately hoping for. And again, hoping, if, right. if, th- if things play out that way and you get a guy like Pulak into a Miso, I mean, Detroit fans are going to be absolutely ecstatic because Pulak has really come out of nowhere and is a big reason why the Islanders have been so good. I think Barry Trotz has been great for him out in New York and, and really for the development of a lot of those players. Yeah. Who do you got in net? I don't think you have much money left. So I don't have a lot of money left because I spent it all on my forwards and defense. So you know me, I have to go cheap in goal. And so I thought the real sneaky pick was Darcy Kemper, who at $1.85 million has been absolutely outstanding this year. Um, he's struggled with injuries, but I think if he's able to play and be solid in net, um, he's a guy that uh, I think would be a great value pick. And then the real, real sneaky pick as my backup goaltender is Elvis, uh, Elvis Merzokens out of Columbus because, 
Uh, a lot of people realize that even though he's a rookie, he only had that one year of his entry level contract, which was the year prior. This year, he's actually on just a one year deal at $875,000. The guy's a stud. And that was a way I could get cheap goaltending. And, and I mean, I don't know that a Kemper Merzilikens tandem is going to be, uh, you can get much better value than that. I mean, those guys combined are making $2.7 million. Um, and I've got those two as my two goaltenders. Now, why is Merlickens not an ELC? Because he's a rookie. He is a rookie, but I think it's because of the definition of rookie in um, the way the NHL defines it in terms of games played. So he signed his first contract, I believe, at the age of 24. So he only had to do a one-year contract. And so his ELC was was just 2018-2019. And then he didn't play the requisite games to be considered a non-rookie because he didn't play any games in 2018-2019. So this was, again, his actual first year of a standard contract, and he just did a one-year deal. And that's why you're able to get him at that point. So So it all works out. slide when he signed. Correct, because he signed on March 20, 2019. It's actually funny. These two contracts are only signed two months apart. But... The ELC was only for, was only in March 20th. He didn't play. And so then he's already going because you can't slide it because he's, he's over 20. And so then he goes and signs a standard contract two, two months later. And so this was the really sneaky pick and a great way for me to get value, uh, out of my goaltending position. Yeah. I, I was kind of counting on him being there. Uh, I guess I didn't realize that he wouldn't count as a rookie, but I will, uh, press on nonetheless. Very good roster. I'm very intimidated. But, um, all right, you did yours kind of by line. I'm going to go mine in order of the guys I got to have. Um, and that's going to start with Victor Hedman. He's a little pricier, but the way I figure this is $81.5 million divided by 23 players. It's a little less than $4 million a player, I think. So for every $7 million player, I got to have an ELC. Uh, Victor Hedman's almost an $8 million player at 7.875, but I think he's the best defenseman in hockey. And I'm not going to uh, pass on him in the interest of saving, you know, several hundred thousand dollars. It's just not worth it. So I'll take my top pair. I'll balance them out with Kale McCarr, who I think by most people's definition is already a top 10 defenseman in the NHL. So right there, I'm going to get the best pair, I think, in this virtual game with Hedman and McCarr. And I'm going to do it for pretty close to the average cost that I need uh, on any given pairing. Um, that's going to be my, my, my rock, my baseline. I'm also going to take uh, Elias Pettersson because of since I can do the ELCs, he's going to probably be maybe the biggest uh, per war or whatever value uh, that I can get at $925,000. Awesome player. Uh, I'm sure you would have taken him if you could have, uh, but that's why I take the rabbit position. <laughs> so um, I'll take him. And I'll also take Andrei Svechnikov. Um, he's a guy who, when you and I talked about this, you mentioned kind of Pettersson, Makar, Hughes. Uh, and, and Anthony Sorelli, who was another guy that I took, is guys that you knew I would be taking. Uh, I'm also going to add Svechnikov to that list. That's a no-brainer to me. One of the already one of the top right wings in hockey. Uh, huge breakthrough season this year. So he's he's on my team. Sorelli is also. I'm going to slot him on the fourth line center and sleep very easy at night, knowing he's already one of the top defensive forwards in hockey. Uh, that's a lot of my early value eaten up. Quinn Hughes, another one. I'm going to take him. I'll play him there. He's going to be my power, one of my power play quarterbacks, although I'm not going to lack for that one bit on this team. Um, Kevin Fiala is a guy who at $3 million really had a strong finish to this season to the point that 
I don't know if he's going to win me the points with the voting public, um, but I'm going to take him and, and hope that there's enough of a payoff at just three million uh, from him. Same deal with Oliver Bjorkstrand, two two and a half million, and Brendan Gallagher, three point seven five million. Those are all contracts I want on my team. Um, they're all at or below what I need the average to be, and that's going to allow me to take some guys who are a little above what I need the average to be. So that's going to be Jonathan Huberdeau, one of the best left wings in hockey. Uh, Jacob Slavin, one of the very best all-around defensemen in the NHL. Um, Philip Forsberg, who's a dynamic offensive player. Patrice Bergeron. Uh, I'm going out of order here, so I'm not just doing all, all one position group. So just jump in if you want to criticize or, or whatever here. Uh, Patrice Bergeron. I don't know if this is getting too spendy here by this point, but uh, 6.875. He's getting up there in years, but I don't think we're building for the future with this. So uh, I'm going to take Bergeron while he's still near the top of his game. Yeah, Bergeron uh, was the surprising pick. Uh, you know, when when I'm looking at your roster, I think at this point, you know, you can say he's at the tail end of his peak or, or it, you know, maybe even on the downswing a little bit. But I was surprised. I mean, I thought, uh, I thought you would be able to get a little bit more value, but... Again, you're not wrong. Bergeron's still an elite player, and, and you've got him, you know, with the other players you've got around him, you, you don't necessarily need him to do a whole lot for you. But $6.9 million is a, it's a pricey uh, third-line center, if you will. The other guys I considered were Sebastian Ajo, who's more expensive, Dylan Larkin, who's a little less, but I don't think he's within um, the, like, million-dollar gap in price yet of, of Bergeron, uh, and then Mika Zibanejad. And I thought Zibanejad long and hard... But ultimately, I figured I still like Bergeron more. Um, I like his two-way game a bit more, quite a bit more, uh, and I think that I can make this work because of the ELCs. But if I need to go back and double back, he'd be the guy that I would flip out there as a banished for Bergeron. Yeah, the ELCs, man. You know, when you think about it, and, and it, we've talked about this a lot in terms of kind of advancing guys while they're on their ELCs um, to one, know what you have, and two, to make sure you can get these guys at the at the at a good price point, you know, moving forward for longer term and, and you think about how that played out with Larkin. But when you look and you actually go to construct a roster a roster, you realize that if you take advantage of good players on their ELCs, this is how you build contenders. This is how you build winners. Um, you know, I wrote an article a couple years back basically talking about how, how you should maximize you know, your ELCs, uh, and this is the way you do it because when you're able to, to take a defensive group and have Adam, you know, like, uh, you know, like a Quinn Hughes and a Kale McCarr for a combined $1.7 million or $1.8 million, like, it's just, it's not fair, uh, you know, when you're able to then say, all right, I have the luxury of spending millions of dollars elsewhere. And I think that's such a vital point to make when you're looking at this that, uh, you know, the ELCs are, are just such a game changer. Notice you almost said Adam Fox there, which is convenient because I'm also taking Adam Fox. on yeah, a, I on did. <laughs> um, so he's going to be in my group too there uh, on the Slavin pair. And then I'm going to add Dougie Hamilton to the Hughes pair. I went back and forth with this one, whether it was going to be Dougie or whether it was going to be Seth Jones. Um, actually, I may have written down Dougie's salary wrong. I did. So you're cheating. You're already cheating. I see what it is. I think I might be a couple hundred thousand dollars over. Oh man, Max, game changer. Um, so we'll, what are the cap penalties now? I'm going to pull up the NHLPA <laughs> and uh, we'll assess. Uh, I think you get docked some draft picks or something like that. Is that right? No, I'll make a cut here. I'll make a <laughs> cut here. 
Um, I still got time. Okay, let me finish out my forward group here. Um, I already know what I'm going to do. Uh, okay. I will take uh, Brian Rust. He is a pheno- having a phenomenal season. I would not have expected prior to this season taking him in an exercise like this, but I don't think I can pass it up. I don't know if people realize how good of a season Brian Rust is having. I guess that may ultimately be one of the obstacles uh, that I face in all of this, but you are going to be hard-pressed finding a guy uh, who for, what is he, $3.5 million? Yeah, three and a half. Is putting yeah. up. Yeah, he's putting up better numbers uh, than his 56 points in 55 games. He's got half a goal a game. Um, you know, he plays with Crosby, uh, which helps. But, hey, guess what? I'm taking Crosby. So he's going to stay with Sidney Crosby on that line uh, with with Jonathan Huberdo. Uh, I'm also going to take Jacob Verana, um, who's a great value contract, $3.35 million, And then my extra forward is going to be Blake Coleman. Um, obviously a good value pick so much that the Tampa Bay Lightning were willing to be, be first rounder to get uh, the value of his contract. Uh, moving to round out my D, I did take Dougie Hamilton. I could have taken Seth Jones and this is, this was a real tough spot for me. Um, in an actual honest to God hockey game, I'm going to take Seth Jones and it's no slight to Dougie Hamilton. I just think Seth Jones is one of the top five defensemen in the world. Uh, but in this, I know that Dougie Hamilton is adored by the Analux community. And I like Dougie Hamilton a lot too, but like adored. I think they have they consistently have him as one of the top five or so defensemen in the NHL. So I'm going to take Dougie Hamilton here. I really thought about Seth Jones, and if I did take Seth Jones, then I could afford to spend a little bit more in goal, which is where I ultimately made my tweak. Um, but um, – I will round out my D with Matt Grizzlick and Mackenzie Wegar at a combined $3 million as my spare defenseman. Both just useful, um, strong, bottom-of-the-lineup type defensemen. That's all I need at this point with the rest of my lineup uh, because I want to spend big in goal and I want to take the best the goal I have in the best season, the only one with a legitimate heart uh, argument as much as that might bleed your ears to hear me say. That's Connor Hellebuck. Uh, he's at 6.16, so it's costly for sure. Uh, but I'm going to back him up with Pavel Frensos. Uh, although is Frensos on an entry? I don't think he is. I think he's that same rule as Merz Lickens. Yeah, I think he's not on his entry level contract. Yeah, he's anymore. not. But it's it's nine nine hundred fifty thousand dollars. So now I come up even lower under the cap than I expected to be. I've still got you know some tens of thousands of dollars to spend, uh, and that's where I'm coming in. Well, that's fair. I mean, I, I can't help but notice that you decided to spend four times as much as me in net. Um, you know, like I said, the only reason I'll ever do that is if the goaltender's name is Dominic Hasek, but you know, we'll see. I mean, goaltender's only one position and, and he spent a lot of money there, Max. You know, what if Hellebuck just gets lit up? I like Francois a lot too. I, I think he's an awesome player. And even at his next salary, like 950 was a salary for this year. His next salary, he's making 2 million. I think that's incredible value. Yeah, so, yeah. And, I mean, Francis is a guy who actually I flipped back and forth between him and Elvis, and ultimately I went with Elvis because I thought Elvis was having a much better season. But, you know, that's it's, that's a good value pick uh, for Net there. And if we're playing in a seven-game series, I'm going to throw him in there in games three and five just to mess with you for the opposite catching glove and see what it does to your <laughs> shooter's psyches. The opposite catching glove, I've always wondered if that's actually a legitimate thing. I, I've been – meaning to investigate it a little bit because whenever you see those guys come out with the right-handed uh, catching glove, you're like, man, this is so weird. Like Thomas Vacoon was a guy that always threw me when he was playing in Nashville and had that right-handed catching glove. And I remember people used to talk about 
Uh, well, if you look at a lot of the shooters in the NHL, most are left-handed and, and where they like to shoot, you know, it, it's a little bit more difficult to get that puck, uh, you know, between the, the ear and the glove, which is where they're trying to shoot uh, on a left-handed goaltender versus a right-handed goaltender. So very interesting, um, you know, handedness, if you will, for the goaltenders as opposed to defensemen. It actually probably would help me as a as a forward because I have a really bad tendency to shoot like short side. I'm a left-handed shot too. I try to shoot short side all the time, and uh, that usually results in going right into the the catching glove. But if it's on the blocker, maybe I like my odds a little better to, to get a favorable bounce into the net. Potentially, potentially that'll help. But your that's shot just because I'm bad, so I don't know. I guess it doesn't help the NHLers. Yeah, probably not. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, all right, so. Takeaways. What do you like about our, our two rosters? How do you think they match up? So obviously, I think your 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 roster has a lot of the the name brand, if you will. You've got the Crosby, you've got the Bergeron. I like how you went Carolina Hurricanes light and took three of them. You took Slavin, yep. Hamilton, and and, and Svechnikov. Svechnikov, I wasn't going to say anything about because that guy. I mean, that was that was probably the best value pick right there with Pedersen. Um, those two are just absolutely dynamic. Um, that's not going to be a fun line to stop. And even if you're playing uh, beyond this season and you were taking this roster forward, uh, obviously you would eventually run into trouble with your ELCs. But Pedersen and Sveshnikov, at their age, with how good they are already, um, I mean, those are just going to be absolutely dynamite players. You know, i got to say, the, the ELCs uh, really, really helping you out here. Um, Sorelli on an ELC, I think, is also a really, really nice pick because he's really rounded out. Um, into an excellent, excellent uh, forward, and he's going to be due for a big contract, I think, in Tampa. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how they keep him. But I think he did a really nice job uh, balancing your lineup with uh, a lot of the name brands, but also the really high-end ELC players. Yeah, no, I, I thought that was interesting, too, how much the ELCs helped. I mean, I'd love to be able to sit here and say it's just a lesson that if you if you get the right ELCs, you can do anything you want, which I pretty much did anything I want. But I also think um, one of my bigger takeaways from this is how much just getting a couple of, like, legit value contracts that are not ELCs that you had to negotiate, how much easier that makes it, too. I mean, like, the, the Bjorkstrands, Fialas, Veranas of this whole mess, uh, Gallagher – that's actually what allowed me to do this because I couldn't have just gone ELC for high dollar back and forth the whole way. I mean, the Huberto deal, that's a great one. Slavin at 5.75 is great. Dougie at the same price is great. Um, but, you know, ultimately it's it's the ones where you're getting under four and really strong value that allow you to uh, to round this out, whether you have ELCs or not. So the ELCs are huge, but, like, the ones that you negotiate uh, matter just as much, especially if you can get any kind of term on them. Yeah, I completely agree, and I think you're you're illustrating a great point here. And I think it's important to kind of break down the these decisions into buckets, right? So, step one, or the most important thing you have to do is you have to hit on your draft picks. And I, and I said this on the last episode: Wings have to hit on all of their draft picks um, in the fir- really in the first and second round. And the way, and basically how this plays out is the guys when you're when you're picking in the top five and you hit on that pick. That's a player that you're going to want to advance pretty early. You're going to want to sign their entry-level contract. You're going to burn that entry-level contract quite early because that's where you can get these players 
uh, signed to deals that maybe come in a little under market value. And that's where you get the players that look at, that you see on my team. That's where you get the Nathan McKinnons. That's where you get, you know, the Braden points. That's where you get the Sean Couturier's, the guys who are really good players. You picked them, you advanced them, and you get them a little bit maybe under market value. Uh, the next batch of players is maybe your second and third round picks that you hit on, but they're not quite ready. They're not as ready as those first round picks. And so you may sign their entry level contract and you may slide them and you may slide them for a year. You may slide them for two years. And again, using those ELC slides allows you to potentially maximize future value when you do it correctly um, and not on a player that's going to eventually warrant a high dollar deal. But then when you bring those players up on their ELCs, they're then able to be helpful but you may be able to actually get those players on bridge contracts to go through the next little bit because they may not be in that elite tier. And that's where you see the guys like Fiala, Bjorkstrand, Vrana, Blake Coleman, those guys on your roster. That's that group of players that's not going to be elite, and therefore you're not worried about getting them under a long-term deal after their ELC, but you get them on the bridge contract at a shorter you know, shorter deal, a little bit less dollars, and you kind of make them earn each of their contracts as they move forward. So it's really kind of illustrating two types of contracts. And then the last bucket is the truly elite players. You're going to give them money. You're going to give them term. And that's your Crosby uh, that you've got on your team. And that's really the three ways that GM should be uh, dropping their contracts in these different buckets and utilizing all the pieces to make a cohesive team. Max, I think your team does a perfect example of that. You've got the ELC sprinkled throughout. You've got the bridge players sprinkled throughout. And then you've got a couple of those high dollar deals um, for the truly elite players. What I think is actually interesting, though, is that both of those guys who are kind of my quote unquote high dollar, that's that's Crosby and that's Hedman, um, they are not making what they could. And I think that gets into another aspect of this, which is there's sort of like a, a standard or a culture or whatever that the GMs try to set about everyone kind of sacrificing just a little of their personal uh, gain in order to build great teams. And that is kind of the story of both the Hedman and the Crosby contracts, in my opinion. I mean, Hedman's making a lot of money at 7.875, but if you wanted, if he wanted $9 million, I think I'd give it to him, right? And I think you could get it somewhere else for sure. So the fact that you got him on that price, Crosby certainly could have been in double digits, right? Like, there is something here to be said here about what it does for your ability to build a roster, and obviously this is completely fictional or whatever, but like both of these teams are examples of, of what it looks like when you have a culture of guys willing to, to take just a little bit less in order to set a standard uh, about what their, you know, what the salaries on, on their team are going to look like in order to build a winner. I mean, there's a reason that our teams don't feature anyone from, uh, from the Oilers or Leafs, and I think it's because those are really big dollars. I mean, people, uh, even the dry saddle deal, which by now looks quite a bit better than I think when it was people, when it was signed, I think people were kind of uh, reacting to it as though it was like an overpay at 8.5 million. Like I, I guess I could have taken dry sidle, uh, but McDavid at 12.5, I just, it would have been extremely tough for either you or I to make that work, even with the ELCs. Um, and, and for the value drop off to McDavid to Crosby, like $4 million, I don't think is, is, is worth, uh, going to the higher end there. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I will say, like, from Crosby's perspective, though, remember that that deals on the prior CBA where you could That's sign true. people the longer the eight years. And so when they signed Crosby, he's actually 14.5% of the cap. The cap was $60 million when that okay. Crosby deal was signed. So he's at 14.5%. Like, by comparison, Dreisaitl is at 11.3%. But because you could put 12 years on Crosby's deal, 
that deal just continues to get better and better and better as the league uh, cap goes up and up and up. And so every year you're, it's just looking better and better because you signed a generational talent to a good deal. But for a lot of years, um, something that's now illegal to do because that's basically cap circumvention to a certain extent. And so that's why that Cosby deal is such a great deal, um, you know, to be able to hit on it. Uh, I think in today's day and age, like if you look at it, um, you know, at 14 and a half, Percent. I mean, that's north of what Artemi Panarin just signed for with his cap hit of of 11.6%. That's only a 14.3%. So, you know, I think moving forward, teams would be smart to, again, still utilize the long term. If you're the home team and you're able to sign that player that's already been on your roster to the eight-year contract, and that player's a truly elite player. Remember, you have to, to recognize that it's a truly elite player. You want to give them the eight years because that's going to age better and better and better, particularly um, as you're making sure you're not uh, giving them a deal that's going to go too far past their prime. So, like, the guys that are 24, 25 that, uh, you know, are going to be those really elite guys, those are the guys you got to be willing to hand out the eight years because that contract can age better and better over time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny when you when you're going to look back on this. I mean, I think the Marner and, and um, Matthews contracts are ultimately their their correct value and Tavares' correct value. But the one that I think people are going to look back on and say, "Hey, that's that's where the Leafs are deriving their value," is the one that first started all the hullabaloo, which was the Nylander at just under seven. Yeah, and the William Nylander deal is going to be the one that looks the best. Right, and I think you might even see see the same thing happen in Detroit. Not necessarily saying. You're going to have guys on the same caliber as as Marner and Matthews, but when we now go to judge the Bertuzzi and Mantha deals, they may look worse relative to the Larkin deal, and that's because Larkin, uh, as he continues to develop and gets better and better and better, his cap hit, you know, of six million dollars, is going to look like a steal, and and that's how we really picked a lot of our players, and that's how I picked a lot of my team was. Looking at the guys who signed early, um, and maybe they hadn't hit their truly elite status, but you knew that's where they were going, and, and that's what those deals become. And so you may look back five years from now and say, wow, that Mantha deal looks like a lot. Wow, that Bertuzzi deal may look like more than he deserved. But man, look at Dylan Larkin as a steal, and we're going to think at the time when Larkin was signing it, there was serious question as to whether or not he was worth that much money. And he turned the corner, he flipped the switch, and now he's going to look like that deal is going to be a steal. So if you're Detroit, really the key is advance your guys on ELCs that are those high draft picks. The more insiders, whoever Detroit takes um, in the top four this year, you want to advance those guys. You want to get those guys to the negotiating table as early as you can. See if you can get them under market value so you can have deals like Victor Hedman's and some of these other guys that we've talked about. Yep, I think that's very fair to say. All right, uh, should we go to the questions? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so the first one uh, is one uh, from Luke Y, who says, general prospect question, which Red Wings prospects do you think will make their respective national teams for next year's World Junior? Ideally sorting them into categories like already penciled in, getting looks, and camp invites. Well, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, uh, obviously, so we're talking about players who are going to still be under 20, uh, so, you know, Moritz Sider potentially has that ability to, to go again, and, and he should go again, and that should be 
a very easy one so long as he's not actually up in Detroit. I can't imagine that if he is in Detroit, the Wings would let him go over, and that'll be the other factor um, to think about. But he's certainly a guy to, to think about being able to go over there. I would imagine uh, that um, Omer Soderblom gets another look. Uh, again, he'll be a little bit older for the U-20s uh, to potentially make that team. He's a guy who just missed uh, Sweden this year, but he, he might be there. And same with Albert Johansson. Uh, he's another guy who might be able to be over there as well. So those should probably be like the, the three guys that come to mind. Uh, again, Sider is not likely to go if he uh, is on Detroit. Yeah, uh, I think that's fair. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think he will be made available. My guess is you're looking at Master Simone uh, as a, a good shot to make it for Team USA. Um, I think you're looking at maybe Albert Johansson and Tuomisto for Sweden and Finland. I'll be interested if Berglund makes a run for Sweden. He's a guy that started to kind of generate a little bit of buzz late. Um, I'm trying to think of the Canadians. Is there anyone? Who's going to have a shot at Team Canada? I don't think. I don't think. I mean, so. I guess they could draft someone. Like if they draft like a byfield, or if they draft. Or, a, yeah. Yeah, I mean, right. if you were to draft somebody, you know, you know, you draft a Drysdale, you draft a right. byfield. Potentially, those guys go Rossi. But otherwise, there's no Rossi's no, Austria, Austria. So that's right. It'll be Austria. So um, you know, no potentially point. you get Going byfield. Yep. Although uh, Austria is in the A in the A next year, aren't they? Yeah, uh, yeah, they should be because I think they advanced, uh, out of the B this year, even without Rossi. So, yeah. um, that'll be potentially he would go too if, uh, if he's not again in, in the NHL, which I think anybody you take in the top four this year is a serious threat to be in the NHL full time next season with Detroit. I think that's fair. Although I can see like if you get to take a guy like Stutzel, who has the ability to go to the AHL, um, it wouldn't surprise, I mean, that's been the MO so far, right? Is they, they have not rushed guys one bit. So it would not surprise me to see Stutzel at the World Juniors for, for Germany next year, at least. Yeah, I think Stutzel and Byfield's the other one just because of how much younger he is than everybody yeah. else. I think those are the two guys that I could see most likely to go. But, uh, you know, again, Rossi, uh, I think would be likely to be in the NHL next year. Lafreniere, obviously, in the NHL next year. So, um, It'll be interesting to see, but I think a lot of it depends on who the wings uh, actually take. But Master Simone, I think, is is a good one to put out there, and so so is Berglund. Is there any goalies who are who are young enough to go? So I don't know. Bradstrom is Bradstrom young enough? Uh, I don't believe so. I don't no, think the wings would have wins. any. He's twenty three. Have any goalies? That. Right? Yeah, I don't think the wings would have any goalies that could go because. No. Nope. Uh, obviously, Petrozelli won't be able to. Eliasson won't be able to. Um, I think everyone's aged out for Detroit. Yep. All right. Well, yeah. So I don't know. I don't think it's going to be as crowded a uh, World Junior field as it was uh, this year. I mean, this year they had quite a bit of names, but I think if you can get Master Simone, Tuomisto, Johansson, um, that's enough intrigue for a pretty good uh, tournament going on there. Poten- plus, potentially, you know, one guy who who they draft in this year's class or something. Yeah, one or two, depending. I mean, you had a couple of second-round picks this year, right? So you may even get a two or three players out of this year's draft who could make or could challenge for their teams. Yep, I think that's fair. Um, all right, we've got uh, this is from Jack, who says expectations for Philip Zadina next season, whenever that is. Uh, what constitutes a successful season for him after what he did this year? 
I think next season is going to be huge because it's really going to tell you what kind of player Philip Zadina is going to be. Um, you know, if he turns the corner and really starts showing you the signs of an elite player. And so what, I, what I'm thinking about with an elite player is a guy who shows substantial impact on both sides of the puck as measured by goals above replacement, GSVA, whatever kind of advanced metric you want to use, showing that he's having kind of great impacts on both sides of the puck. I'd like to see him be able to, to put up 20 goals. I think a 20-goal, 45- to 50-point season uh, next season over a full year shows you that this guy is turning the corner and a guy you want to lock down uh, for a long period of time. I think anything short of that, you're probably going to want to wait until after the 2021-2022 season to negotiate just to make sure that you're not throwing a lot of term or money at a guy who may not have that elite upside. Uh, but I'm hoping for something north of 20 goals and something around 45 to 50 points um, with good impacts on both sides of the puck to really show you that this is an elite player. I think that's 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 a pretty good balance of like asking for for strong performance while still being reasonable. I mean, he's been a half point per game player so far, so I think you want to see him take number one, continue that, and number two, take a little bit of a step forward in the goals department. Um, so yeah, I think if you could get him to forty five or so points over twenty goals, um, that's probably a good season for Philip Zadina. And then a lot of it, I think you just want to continue the overall impact. You want him to do that while not making too many mistakes. Um, I mean, mistakes are, that's a loaded word. He, it's fine if he makes kind of like mistakes because he's trying to be creative and stuff, but, um, you know, maximum compete effort the whole time, uh, and, and, and decision making, you just want to be really on point. And I, he's a really smart player. I think that's, that's very feasible for him. Um, I, I continue to think that he's going to be a guy more and more people will realize that I don't think it's pure goal scoring at all. I think he's a guy who, kind of like Anthony Mantha, will will generally be able to have pretty similar goal and assist totals in the NHL, if not even a little higher on the assistant. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think if you're looking for a player season to kind of mirror or mimic or hope for, I think take a look at Andre Svechnikov's 2018-2019 season. Now, Svechnikov and Zadina, they were in the same draft class, so this is looking basically a year in the past. Uh, but Svechnikov's rookie season, played the full season, 20 goals, 37 points, solid impacts on both sides of the ice, kind of showed you that he was going to be a, a really strong player. And then obviously this season he's exploded at a point per game, massive impact. And, and that's kind of the, the trajectory you want to see. So next season would theoretically be Zadina's first full season whenever that does happen. I think seeing something a little bit better than what Svechnikov had in that 18-19 season would be a good target for him. We should couch this to, no matter what, you know, the answer to this question is going to depend a little bit on his usage. So I think I know our listenership very much would want to see him use as high in the lineup as possible. Right now, the Red Wings really only have one um, center who I think can really drive offense. And I think Philip Zadina... Um, could could I mean like any player could stand to improve by playing with um, Dylan Larkin. I mean if he's with Larkin, then I think those expectations that we set are pretty fair. But if he's not, if he's lower and if he's even on the second line, and he just doesn't have um, you know the, the kind of offensive firepower on his line, you have to take that into account when you're talking about numbers too. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. And again, you know if the Wings are able to land a center in the draft, and you get a Marco Rossi, or you get a Quinton Byfield, and those guys make the NHL. Potentially, you do have another threat to play with. So it'll be really interesting to see, but I still think there's a lot up in the air for him. Very fair. Okay, uh, the Grindline podcast asked for your favorite wing sauces. Uh, all right, so generally, I have kind of two ways that I go about this. One is I'll order a uh, 
the hottest sauce that that place has, whatever it is, you know, if you have to sign a Tough waiver, it's better. You got to get one that absolutely burns your lips off. So there's got to be something from that heat factor. Um, and then the second one is, you know, kind of a sneaky favorite. It's the, the, the mango habanero. Like it's not that hot. It's got that little bit of sweetness to it. That's usually the other uh, set of wings that I'll get. Those are good answers. I mean, I am certainly a sucker for traditional buffalo sauce. I think you know, I'm a big Frank's guy, so I'm perfectly happy with just Frank's and, and butter, kind of that that old standby combination. But uh, I actually think the B-dub sauces have gotten better lately. I'm also big, if you're going to Wingstop, on the Louisiana rub, which is not a sauce, um, but I don't think it's per se totally like a dry rub either. Like it doesn't dry the wing out at all. Um, I'm big on like the Cajun. And then the other B-dubs one I like that I did not expect to like this much is the Thai curry one. Um, yeah. Obviously Thai curry is good, but the B-dubs version of it is quite good, like better than I would have expected from a place like B-dubs to have. Yeah, I mean, there, that's a great pick because that's always a good one if you're going to go and get a few baskets of wings. Like that's yeah. a, that's a good sauce to go for. Yeah, so so the spicy garlic is another kind of contender in that vein. I love to mix like a mild or medium buffalo with Parmesan garlic. And so like one of my yeah. uh, kind of favorite local places, Jay's Penalty Box, they'll mix them for you. And then you get like the spicy Parmesan garlic, which to me is is the king. But there's a lot of good options. It's really hard to go wrong with wings. Yeah, you really – I mean there's certainly some duds out there. Like if you try to make a sauce that just doesn't have any really spice or flavor right. to it, which – you know, there's, there's a handful of places that do that. That's just, it's such a disappointing wing. But, you know, more than anything, if you get a, if you make a good wing that can hold the sauce you've got, it's hard to go wrong. Yep. I'm, I'm on board with that. All right. Uh, and then, uh, just to add, uh, someone, uh, Brad Rinderconnect, uh, made a comment that I think I don't necessarily understand, but you'll probably appreciate. It. He said, my favorite wing sauce is Larianoff to LaPointe in the 98 playoffs. So he's yeah. referring to a saucer pass. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great saucer pass. There's a couple of really, really good ones. I think my favorite one that comes to memory is Brett Hull's 700th goal. And so it comes basically with, with Datsu coming down the, the right side and he throws this, I don't even know how he sees Hull literally all the way at the other, he's basically at the left face off dot and he finds Hull with just a great saucer pass right across one timer. Past Evgeny Nabokov, Brett Hull, 700th goal, whole team pours out. That's just one of my favorite saucer passes I've ever seen from, from Datsu. He's just unreal with that. Yeah, yeah. All right. And then we'll close on this one, another lighter note one. Favorite sports movies from Rob Byram. Oh, favorite sports movies. I mean, obviously, you got to be a sucker for Miracle. I think that was just... It's always a good one to put on and watch. Uh, and more of a lighthearted manner. Always a happy Gilmore fan. Just, again, just stupid humor. Something I don't have to pay a lot of attention to. So those are probably uh, the two main go-tos. But I have to also throw Dodgeball in. ESPN The Ocho absolutely counts as a sports movie. That's a good one. Uh, Dodgeball's great. It was on this weekend, and I, or maybe last weekend or something. I forgot to watch it. I did watch uh, Semi-Pro. And, uh, there was another Will Ferrell. I never, I hadn't, I hadn't seen the campaign. Is that a Will Ferrell movie? Uh, that's Zach Galifianakis. Yeah. I think yeah. Will Ferrell's also on yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the, one of the channels was, it must have been having a Will Ferrell marathon. So I kind of had that on in the background for a while. Um, favorite sports movie. I, I'm very partial to Miracle. I think that was, uh, I was maybe eight or nine when that came out. And that was a big one. I, I've seen it many times. 
uh, one of my favorite, most most quotable sports movies. I also just did the write-up when we did our The Athletic Top 100 Sports Movies list. Um, I was a little surprised they allowed this to be a sports movie, but I thought Uncut Gems is outstanding and probably the best movie I've seen in the last couple of years. Um, sport, it's a lot of sports gambling. I wouldn't per se call it a sports <laughs> movie, uh, but if we're if we're putting it in the category, I'm voting for it. Yeah, I mean, if it's going to be available, you you might as well use it, right? So yeah, that's a that's a good one. Yeah, I'm trying to think of any others. Uh, I know my buddy Mike likes this one uh, for the love of the game. That's supposedly about the Tigers. I actually haven't seen that, which I'm surprised because usually when there's a movie like that, they'll play it locally uh, a lot. So maybe that's one that I should add to my list. He's he has cautioned that it's kind of like, you know, like comfort food movie kind of thing, but I can definitely get down with movies yeah. like that. Yeah, and I mean, I guess in the in the local vein, you have to shout out the Russian Five. I mean, that was just so well done. Sure. So that that was obviously a great. Um, not not what we're thinking about big market movie, but that was obviously very well done. So. Uh, oh, you know, Talladega Nights great. too. Yeah, Talladega Nights, and then you know, might as well throw a Space Jam in there. That counts too. Like absolutely, absolutely. All right, so there's our. Uh, probably very unsurprising favorite sports movies. I don't know if there's anything in there that you guys haven't seen, but uh, if you're looking for something, I guess there's there's a list there to choose from. Um, we really appreciate you guys uh, listening and, and staying engaged through this with us. Uh, remember to keep keep going to small businesses, keep going to get takeout. Uh, there's a place here in, in Ferndale called Como's Pizza that I think does some of the best Detroit-style pizza out there. So if you're looking for a good takeout spot, would definitely recommend Como's. I like the Roni. It's like uh, pepperoni and peppers and garlic. So uh, that's my personal fave. But whatever you do, just make sure you're supporting small businesses and, and your local restaurants because we all want to make sure that those are still there when we get through all of this. Thanks for sticking around and uh, keep sending us ideas. We, re- we really appreciate it. Thanks. <laughs>